privilege we have, even the desire we have, we thank you for that, to come and to hear your word. And Lord, today we just ask that our minds would be settled. Oh, there is so much pulling on us today, and we just need to shut it all down for just the next hour and focus on you. Out of 24 hours, let's just, for one hour, just give it all to you, Lord. And we trust that when we do that, it won't return void. You tell us it won't, and we thank you for that as well. We're so thankful for Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our Sustainer, our Redeemer. He is everything to us. And as we study his life, we just praise you even more for him. We thank you for how he lived as an example for us, how he died for our salvation, and how he intercedes for us now. Help us to know him better, Lord, for being here today. Watch how he respond to every situation, Lord, and help us to have the strength to do the same. I pray for Catherine now. I just trust that you will hide her behind your cross and exalt the Lord Jesus in her teaching. In Christ's name, amen. We're on Lesson 170, Christ Before Pilate. If you would open up your Bibles to two places, find Luke 23, first of all. Luke 23, and then also John 18. Luke 23 and John 18. We have spent six weeks in looking at the three Jewish religious trials of the Lord Jesus, and now today we are going to embark on our consideration of his three-phase trial held before the official representatives of Rome. So today we begin to look at his civil trials. We're finished with his religious trials. We're beginning his civil trials, which weren't really very civil. Now, the Lord's civil trial was largely conducted by the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. You all know that. Although Herod Antipas, who was the tetrarch of Galilee and Perea, oversaw the second very short phase of his religious. There's going to be three civil trials, one before Pontius Pilate, the second quick one before Herod, and then the third one again before Pilate. And today we're going to begin our look at the first of the Lord's Roman trials, which was held before Pilate. Our outline, if you look at your books, is very simple. It just is based on Pilate's two conversations. He has one conversation with the Jews who brought Jesus to him. He talks to them. That's what we're going to look at this morning. And then next week, this is going to be a part A and a part B again. Oh, surprise, surprise, right? (laughs) Next week, we're going to look at Pilate's conversation with none other than Jesus himself. So using primarily the Gospel of John, since he does give us the most information about this first civil Roman trial, we're going to look today at Pilate's dialogue with the prosecutors, okay? Next week, his dialogue with the prisoner. So let's begin by reading just two verses in Luke 23. If you'll look with me at verses 1 and 2, and then we're going to move over to John, and we'll stay in John most of this morning, okay? John 18. So looking, first of all, at Luke 23, verse 1, And the whole multitude of them arose and led him unto Pilate. Who is that speaking of? The Sanhedrin council, the chief priests, and the Sadducees, and the and the the other guys of the council, led him unto Pilate. And they began to accuse him, Jesus, saying, 
We found this fellow perverting the nation and forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. All right, now go over to John 18. There is, by the way, absolutely nothing about this dialogue between Pilate and the Sanhedrin council members that is found in Matthew or Mark. They give us nothing about this conversation. Most of the conversation is found in John. So let's look at John 18, starting at verse 28. Then led they Jesus from Caiaphas unto the hall of judgment. And it was early. And they themselves went not into the judgment hall, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Pilate then went out unto them and said, What accusation bring ye against this man? They answered and said unto him, If he were not a male factor, would we not have delivered him up unto thee? Then said Pilate unto them, Take ye him and judge him according to your law. The Jews therefore said unto him, It is not lawful for us to put any man to death. And why did they say that? That the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spake, signifying what death he should die. Of course, they didn't say it to fulfill prophecy, but nonetheless, when they said it, they did fulfill prophecy. Well, as we know, after having failed to find a legitimate indictment against Jesus, the members of the Jewish Sanhedrin falsely accused him of what? What did they accuse him of? Blasphemy, when he claimed to be exactly who he is, the Christ, the Son of God. And therefore, they condemned him to die. However, because Israel was a province under the iron fist of the mighty Roman Empire, she was not permitted to execute the death sentence. It was required of Israel to get permission from her Roman officials to condemn someone to death. At this time now, of course, you all know this, but at this time, the Roman procurator or governor who was directly responsible to the emperor, to Caesar, was an arrogant, cynical, rude man named Pontius Pilate. By the way, this is very interesting to know that the Jewish Talmud and also history itself has verified that the execution privilege was taken away from the Jews. In other words, they could not execute someone. They could not, you know, perform a death sentence on someone. That privilege was taken away from them about 40 years before the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. You know, Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD when Titus Vespasian came in and destroyed, you know, the temple. Not one stone remained upon another. So they lost their privilege to execute a death sentence 40 years before that, which would put it at what? 70 minus 40 is 30. 30, About 30 A.D., they lost their privilege to execute a death sentence on someone, which puts it right at the very time when Jesus began his public ministry. He was about 30 years of age. Isn't that interesting? Very, it's very interesting. It shows us once again, as with everything else, the sovereignty of God, that he was orchestrating every detail. You know, it's interesting to think about this. It was the Romans, it was their, the Roman taxation law that got Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem 
so that Jesus, you know, was born in the right place that prophecy had predicted. It was also the Romans uh, execution law that got, you know, took care of Jesus's death, that he died by way of the Romans, you know, crucifixion, which was what Old Testament prophecy also said, right? Do you see that? So how God was using the Romans taxation law and their execution law. God is just in control, isn't he? And do you know what? He is just as much in control today as he was then. I want you all to get a pen right now and write down the name of this book. If you don't read anything else this year but your Bible, I want you to read this book, Natalie. (laughs) Natalie Strange gave me a book last week, and I couldn't put it down. You're going to think I'm crazy because it takes you a while, okay? You have to sort of work your way through it. You have to plod along, but right when you get to the end, it's going to blow you away. God was orchestrating and sovereignly in control of 9-11 in just such an amazing way. You can't, it's, it's judgment upon our nation, definitely. But wait till you read this book. It is called, you've got to get it, <laughs> The Harbinger, H-A-R-B-I-N-G-E-R. Is that how you spell it? The Harbinger. I told her I'm going to tell everybody I, I meet. I've already, everybody I meet now, I'm saying you've got to read this book. Um, and it's by Jonathan Kahn, C-A-H-N. He's a Jewish Christian out of New York City. Has a church up there, right? C A H N. And when you read it, you come to me and tell me. I wish I wish we could just take a little sidetrack and study that book together, really. But it, it is going to blow you away. We're in under judgment right now. We definitely are. And he uses up. He uses Old Testament prophecy, Isaiah nine ten. You'll just be amazed. All right. So that was a footnote. So God was orchestrating everything then. He's orchestrating everything today. So then at the very, very time of the Lord's trials, the Sanhedrin Council was uh, allowed. They were allowed the right to decree a death sentence, but they were not allowed the right to execute it. If an execution was to be carried out, Rome, first of all, had to confirm the correctness of their decision. So, in other words, she says that Jesus should die. Well, Rome has to confirm that that's true. He should die. They have to confirm their decision, and then they, and they alone, can carry out the actual execution. However, having said all that, this in no ways means that these uh, proud Jewish rulers did not take the law into their own hands when they wanted to. Just because they lost the privilege to execute a death sentence, they didn't always obey that law, did they? Remember when the Jews of Jesus' hometown of Nazareth wanted to push him off a cliff? Did they first run to their local nearby Roman garrison to receive their permission and ask them to kill him for them? Did they do that, or were they just going to push him off the cliff? Yeah. Well, remember when they brought to Jesus an adulterous woman? And surely, if Jesus had given the go, they would have done what to her? Stoned her to death right there. And we know on many previous occasions, they likewise would have gladly stoned Jesus himself to death if he hadn't managed to somehow disappear, you know, out of their sight. We also know that an angry Jewish mob did indeed stone to death the first martyr, Stephen, didn't they, in Acts 7, 58, 59. And the Romans overlooked 
these kinds of things, when they had to do with religious and moral matters that didn't disrupt their own rule. So they just kind of turned their eyes away from those sort of things. You know, ah, that's the Jews and their religious things, so we'll just, it isn't bothering us, it isn't interfering with Roman rule, so they looked the other way. And uh, they allowed the Jews under their own puppets, Annas and Caiaphas, they, they were Roman puppets, they allowed them to settle their own internal issues as long as those particular issues didn't threaten Rome or didn't threaten Caesar. So having said all that, in the case with Jesus, the Sanhedrin now decided that they did not want to carry out the execution themselves. Remember when we were told, I think it was Mark 15, 1, that they, they counseled together? Everything happened so fast. They weren't planning on Judas coming right away. And so, you know, they had to get together, and what are we going to do now? Well, before they had been willing to stone him to death, but now they're thinking, you know, ah, there's too many people here in Jerusalem. So they plan together, we'll get Rome. We'll actually obey, you know, obey the law this time and get Rome to execute him. So they're, they're readily, they were ready to play the part of his judge. But now they had determined that it would be far wiser due in part to the massive Passover pilgrims that were in the city, uh, the holy city, it would be wiser for them to get Rome to play the part of the executioner. And there are four main reasons for this. Number one, by getting Rome to carry out all their formalities of justice, it would give more of an appearance of legality to this uh, whole condemnation of Jesus. So the people would say, you know, well, Rome carried on the trial, so it, it must be legal. Secondly, if, Rome, if the Romans con, uh, controlled Jesus' execution, there would be much greater safety for the Jewish religious rulers. You know, the common people would be less likely to stage a riot against the iron hand of Rome, right? So it would look more legal if Rome killed him, and it would be a lot more safe for the, for the religious rulers themselves if Rome executed Jesus. Third, as we know, the Roman manner of execution at that time for non-Roman citizens was by the atrocious means of what? Crucifixion. The Jewish authorities cleverly decided that this was the way that they wanted Jesus to die because it would put upon him a lasting mark of infamy that they uh, figured would make his claims to messiahship and his claims to deity appear absolutely preposterous, not even remotely possible. Why is that? Well, because a death by crucifixion would put a divine reproach upon Jesus that no one could deny. What does it say in Deuteronomy 21:23? Clearly says, "Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree." Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. What is crucifixion? Hanging on a tree. You know, they made the cross out of a tree. Those divinely inspired words written by Moses would be used repeatedly back then and even yet today by the Jewish leaders to give biblical reason for denying the messianic credentials of Jesus Christ. 
could he possibly, possibly be the Messiah? You know, some Jewish seeker of truth, and I'm sure there have been many, many over the centuries, might go to his rabbi and say, Rabbi, why couldn't Jesus of Nazareth possibly be our Messiah? Why, why couldn't he? And what would the rabbi's answer be? Then and today, don't be ridiculous. He died by hanging on a tree. He was crucified. Have you not read Moses? This Jesus you speak of was cursed by God himself. How can we believe in a Messiah, or worse, believe in one who said that he was the son of God, when his means of death prove that he was a curse to God? You see their reasoning? Kind of makes sense, doesn't it, right? Hang, accursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. He couldn't possibly be our Messiah because God himself cursed him. Those were God's words through Moses. And that's why, you see, the chief priests, we're going to see this in a few weeks or a few months or whenever we get there, but why the chief priests were stirring up the mob when Pilate was wavering. You know, Pilate was looking to evade the whole issue. And so the chief priests were going in among the mob and getting the mob to shout out what? Crucify him, crucify him. Because they wanted this divine uh, curse to be put upon him. So here's the critical question. Does Deuteronomy 21:23 make Jesus ineligible to be our to be the Messiah, the Christ? No. Absolutely not. On the contrary, it's because he willingly did make himself a curse by literally becoming the curse of sin for us and literally becoming what else for us? Sin. Because he became the curse and became sin for us that he has made redemption from the curse of the law possible. Galatians 3.13. So it's because he was willing to become the curse and take that divine curse in our place that he is the Messiah. Okay, so that's the third reason. That was complicated, wasn't it? But it did, it was because they wanted him crucified by Rome because it would put a reproach upon him. Fourth reason, the conniving religious rulers of Israel would want Pilate representing Rome to execute Jesus, was to have less of a reproach set upon themselves. They figured that whoever was considered to be the executioners of such a good man, you know, one who went around doing so many good and wonderful things for so many people, that they, that, that one, whoever killed him, a good person like Jesus, uh, would be held in contempt by the masses, the people. Who, who loved Jesus. They liked Jesus. They liked all the good things he was doing for them. And so these rulers wanted that contempt to fall upon the Romans rather than to further decrease their own, pop, their own popularity rating, which was also, uh, you know, suffering greatly ever since Jesus arrived on the scene. I don't think they were popular before Jesus, but especially after Jesus came on the scene, uh, their their popular their rating you know if you know how we take polls of how Congress is doing and Congress is like at a ten percent how many of you love what Congress is doing <laughs> but that's the same rating went for uh, the Sanhedrin Council back in that day so so it was because it would look like 
Um, it was more legal if they got Rome to crucify Jesus. It would be safer for them if Rome crucified Jesus. It would put a divine reproach upon Jesus, and it would be less of a reproach on them, the Jewish religious rulers, if they had Rome execute him. So those are the main reasons the Sanhedrin determined to get Rome to carry out the execution of Jesus. Now, in Mark 15:1, we looked at this last time, but we had learned that they bound him, probably in chains, when they led him away to be delivered over to Pilate. And remember what that word delivered also means or literally means in the Greek? Betrayed. When they betrayed him over to Pilate. So they bound him. Do you really think that at this point it was necessary for them to bind Jesus? My goodness. I mean, he's already bruised and battered and bleeding from their terrible mistreatment of him. And think about this. He has not had any sleep since Tuesday night at Mary and Martha and Bethany, um, Mary and Martha and Lazarus's house in Bethany. That's the last time he's had any sleep. Okay? If he had much that night, I don't know. He might have stayed up most of the night praying that night. That was the night Mary anointed him, you know, with her expensive spikenard perfume. So it's now early, early Thursday morning, and he hasn't had any sleep. Did these chief priests really think that a man they themselves said was nothing but a mere man, no divine power, did they really think that a mere man in that kind of a condition, well, they've already you know, beaten and spit upon and, and he's tired, and he's being escorted by a large entourage, I'm sure, you know, um, of their temple guard, and who had also already displayed absolutely no resistance whatsoever, did they now suddenly think that he was going to be a threat to them? Did they think that suddenly he was going to have enough strength to make some kind of escape from them? I mean, he doesn't have any of his own men with him, does he? He's all alone. Did they really need to bind him? Or do you think they might have been worried about who they really thought he was? What had he done in Gethsemane just shortly before? I am. And boom, 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 like dominoes. They all go falling down. Why did they bind him at this point? Unless they really believed. I mean, they knew he had power, didn't they? Even in that kind of condition. And they might have also been trying to further humiliate him. But it's interesting. The fact is, however, regardless of why they bound Jesus, he was not going to escape, was he? He wasn't going to escape, and it certainly wasn't because he couldn't have if he wanted to. He could have in a just, you know, no problem at all. He could have escaped. But he had determined to submit himself to a much higher authority than them, had he not? It was the divine plan all along since before the foundation of the world was laid that he would die by what means? That he would die by means of crucifixion, hanging on a tree, lifted up on a pole as the serpent in the wilderness. And that divine plan, of course, is what held him in submission, not the puny chains that were put upon him by mere men. Also... In leading a quiet and submissive Jesus to Pilate, the Jews again were unknowingly fulfilling Messianic scripture because Isaiah 53, 7 says that he was led as a sheep to the slaughter. 
A sheep doesn't say a word on the way to the slaughter, does it? Not even a little bah. <laughs> now, the Lord, of course, we know he could have annihilated that entire escort with one word. Again, he could have just spoken his name, and they could have, they could have all been on the, on the ground flat or dead or whatever. But his submission to them was only due to his willing submission to the will of his heavenly Father. And so Jesus was led to Pontius Pilate, who served as the Roman governor under the reign of Tiberius Caesar. From 27 to 37 A.D., Pilate was governor of Judea and Idumea from 27 to 37 A.D. That's for 10 years. Now, normally, Pilate kept his residence in, or he kept held court in Caesarea, which is right on the Mediterranean there. And you can read about it in Acts 25.1. That Roman city, Caesarea, used to be the headquarters for Herod the Great. That's where he had his palace. Remember Herod the Great? Who was he? He was the guy in charge when Jesus was born. Right. That's where he had his headquarters was in Caesarea. And that's normally where Pilate lived. However, at the time of Israel's great feasts, such as the Passover, when there were massive crowds of Jewish pilgrims in the city of Jerusalem, it was very critical for the Roman governor to move, you know, temporarily, take up his residence down in Jerusalem. So he'd come from Caesarea to Jerusalem during feast times in order to be present to preserve law and order. So whenever the governor took up his personal residence or wherever he took it up, whether it was in Caesarea or if it was in Jerusalem or wherever he went, Wherever he set up his residence, that place was then known as the Judgment Hall, or in Latin, Praetorium. So now, I mean, normally the Judgment Hall was in Caesarea, but now it was there, in, uh, and it was probably in the Fort, Fortress Antonia. He, he was staying there during the feast, and so that was now known as the Judgment Hall or the Praetorium. Now again, in uh, John eighteen twenty-eight, are you in John? You're in John, right? Look at verse 28. This is just unbelievable. Uh, but again, we see, as with the, um, the betrayal money, you know, back in Matthew 27, 6, that Judas had cast down on the temple floor, and the priests refused to put that money back into the temple treasury. Remember what hypocrites they were? They had probably taken the betrayal money out of the temple treasury to pay Judas, but now that it was, you know, had done its dirty work, they weren't going to put it back into the temple treasury. They're such hypocrites. But just like that kind of hypocrisy, we read of yet another incredible display of the gnat and camel hypocrisy, I call it. The, you know, they would, they would spit out a gnat. You know, a gnat is a tiny, tiny little bug. They spit out a gnat while at the same time swallowing a camel. So we see another display of gnat and camel hypocrisy. And you can almost sense John's hint of sarcasm as he writes these words. Let's look at him, verse 28. It says, Then led they Jesus from Caiaphas unto the hall of judgment, or the praetorium, and it was early, and they themselves went not into the judgment hall. Why? <laughs> lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. Okay, this makes a whole lot of sense, doesn't it? Makes a lot of sense. After all, it was the Passover. 
And they all had their perfect little lambs, you know, kept as little pets in their homes for the past three and a half, four days. And those little lambs were ready to be sacrificed that very afternoon at 3 o'clock. They had all made sure that their wives had meticulously cleansed their homes of every little bit of what? Every little bit of leaven. Um, They had all performed all the necessary rituals so that they would be ceremonially clean and they could eat their Passover meals. Thus, they had absolutely no intention whatsoever of risking defilement by entering into a Gentile residence. Okay, they were clean. They were clean as they could be on the outside. You know, and if they went into that Gentile residence, they li- there likely was some leaven in that place, right? There might be one little piece of leaven, or probably was more than one little piece, because the Gentiles didn't care about getting the leaven out of their homes. They would also, in that home, would probably have some images of perhaps Jupiter or banners maybe with a Caesar imprinted on them or some other supposed Roman god, you know, in that home. Or they might, if they entered into the Praetorium, they might even bump into a Gentile, you know, accidentally touch one and therefore, you know, contaminate themselves. You see, they were scrupulous, weren't they, about adhering to ceremonial laws and their own horrible prejudices against Gentiles. But the camel that they swallowed is this. They had just gotten through with breaking every principle of moral law and justice in arresting, mistreating, and condemning to death A totally innocent man. Actually, their long-awaited Messiah. (laughs) And yet now, they want to be all pious. They want to be ceremonially clean so that they can eat their Passover lambs while they are in the very process of murdering the only true Passover lamb who ever, ever could make them clean inside and out. Isn't that true? What hypocrisy. It's just absolutely incredible how blind people can be, especially religious people. This is a great example of both the foolishness and the worthlessness of religions that fail to influence what? The heart. The heart of the matter. You know, all religions only affect somebody outwardly, don't they? Oh, you know, they've got their do's and their don'ts. But the only religion that affects the inner man, the heart, is Christianity. Having a personal relationship with the living God. So we just see their hypocrisy over and over again. They don't want to defile themselves while at the very same time they're killing their Messiah. Do we have gnat and camel practices today? You think we do? Oh, absolutely we do. How about those who say that they adhere to a Judeo-Christian worldview, and yet they support the abortion of millions of innocent babies in the wombs, or uh, the legalization of gay marriages, or marijuana usage? Let's make marijuana legal. How about that? Hmm. 
uh, legalize gambling. And just that's just to name a few things. And yet they'll say, oh, I'm a Christian. Or, um, you know, there are sadly many churches today, many churches, where a congregation will get more upset if a pastor changes the order of service in the bulletin than if he denies some of the fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith. I mean, they might get more upset if somebody changes the wallpaper in the bathroom than if he gets up there and says it's not important to believe in the virgin birth. Do you know that? That's gnat and camel hypocrisy. We have it today, too. Well, Pilate had learned by bitter experience, and we're going to talk about this in a future lesson, but um, some of the things he'd gone through with the Jews, (laughs) some of them his own doing, but anyway, he'd learned by bitter experience how adamant the Jews were about the, any little violation of their religious taboos. And so here we find that he accommodated them. Instead of them coming into the judgment hall, what did Pilate do? He went out to them. He accommodated. By the way, as we look at these trials of Pilate, you are going to see this man. It's amazing. Going in and out, in and out, sending him to Herod, bringing, it gets him back. I mean, back and forth, back and forth. And all of that pattern shows he's a, he's a wavering man. He's a compromiser. And we'll see the pattern. Now, this is the first time he goes out to the people, to the, the religious rulers. And we're told in uh, verse 28 that it was what? Early. What time of the day? Probably they figure about 6 or 7 in the morning. Um, and this is Thursday morning. Apparently, as soon as they arrive, Pilate goes out right away. So he was anticipating a visit from these guys because he's up and ready to meet them. It does not at all seem that he was taken by surprise. You know, there's a mob outside the judgment hall. He's not taken by surprise. He's ready to go out. But then uh, he must have been alerted to this approaching situation, if you think about it, when earlier that night the Jews had made an unusual request from him for a cohort of Roman soldiers. So, you know, he knew something was going on, right? Because they had to come to him to get a cohort of Roman soldiers, which was how many? One-tenth of a legion, which is about 600 Roman soldiers. So he knew they were up to something, and he was suspecting that they were going to be bringing somebody to him, that, you know, they wanted to arrest someone. And it's also very, very, very likely that he also knew that that someone would be Jesus by this time he would have had to have had his head in the sand completely not to have heard of this famous Jesus of Nazareth. It just would be hard to imagine that he had never heard of him. So anyhow, he was seemingly expecting something this morning, which is why he goes out and he initiates the conversation with the Jews by asking them for the charge against the prisoner. What accusation bring ye against this man? He asks in verse 29. Now that's a very logical question. You're bringing me a prisoner? What's the accusation? Very logical, very right question to ask. Pilate could not do anything without an accusation, which is really more than could be said of, um, of the Jews. You know, what they did when they first arrested Jesus in um, Gethsemane. They didn't have an accusation, did they? But before Pilate's going to do anything, he wants to know what the accusation is. So he's right in doing this. The Roman law made three requirements. Number one, there had to be a specific indictment against a person for him to be arrested. What's the charge? Secondly, there had to be accusers who were brought forth. 
Now, the Jews didn't do that, did they? They didn't have any accusers. Well, they brought a bunch of false ones, but they didn't really have a, a true accuser. So there had to be accusers brought forth. And third, liberty had to be granted for the accused to, to answer for himself. And we'll see next week that that's what Pilate does. He, you know, wants Jesus to answer for himself. You know, what do you say against these accusations? So Pilate was acting properly when he demanded to know the crime that was charged against Jesus. Now, it would seem here that the Jews were not expecting Pilate's reasonable question. So they covered up their lack of preparation by using sarcasm. They pretended to be insulted that such righteous men as them would uh, even consider bringing an innocent man to him for judgment. Why, they wouldn't even bother him with a common criminal. We wouldn't even bother you, Pilate, if, if we had a common criminal. They would, we would take care of matters ourselves. But this man is different. This man is evil. That's what they say. That's what they imply in their, in their response. Our judgment of him should be beyond questioning, is what they're saying to Pilate. They say, if he were not a male factor, we would not have delivered him up to thee. That's verse 30. You see, they knew that they had no charge that they could support with evidence. All right? They also knew that they did not have two reliable and consistent witnesses. They also knew that their charge of blasphemy would mean absolutely nothing to Pilate. Would it? Would Pilate care about blasphemy against the Jewish God? Mm -mm, not at all. Why would a Roman care if a Jewish man blasphemed the Jewish God? Likely, they themselves did it every day. Pilate himself probably blasphemed the Jewish God every day of his life. All the Romans probably did. Oh, that Jewish God, you know, and they would say all kinds of things because they had their own gods. They didn't believe in Jehovah God. So the chief priests, you know, they knew that their charge of blasphemy would mean nothing to Pilate. So they obviously here had been hoping that Pilate would simply take their word for it that Jesus was worth, worthy of, of execution, of the death sentence, without any questions. They were hoping he would just... You know, they'd gotten him in a lot of trouble previously, and they were hoping he would just go along with it, put Jesus to death, and, you know, be done with the whole situation. But not so. Didn't work out that way for them. Now, the Greek word that is translated male factor is kakopoios. Kakopoios. It refers to a person who is continuously engaged in evil works. Oh, my. Isn't that something? It's actually, uh, if you were Greek, I don't even want to say that, but the first part, the K-O, uh, the K-A-K-O, if it was K-A-K-A, -A, it's a very bad word in Greek. They're speaking very badly about Jesus, one who just does nothing but evil works. And again, don't we see the hypocrisy of these men? They're the kakopoioses, aren't they? They knew in their hearts that this wasn't true. They knew that there was not one evil thing that they or anyone else was able to come up with that Jesus had ever done. That had been their problem. Couldn't find one evil thing. The testimony of his whole life and the testimony of Scripture is that he went about doing good. Acts 10.38 
What was evil? What did he do that was evil? Cleansing the temple of greedy merchants that were ripping off the people? Was that evil? Was it evil to give the blind their eyesight? Was it evil to give strong legs to the lame? Was it evil to cleanse the lepers or to raise the dead or to feed the hungry or to speak the truth? It was exactly because they could not find anything about Jesus that was evil that they had to go out and seek false witnesses. It is exactly why they had already referred to the money that they had paid to Judas to betray him as what? Blood money, which refers to money, you know, used to uh, uh, declare an innocent person guilty, kill an innocent person. They knew all this. These guys knew that they had absolutely no case against Jesus. So they had to make an accusation sound persuasive enough that Pilate would not try to investigate the matter any further, or so they hoped. And so they called Jesus kakapoyos, a male factor, one who continually does nothing but evil. Mm-mm-mm. Well, here's the question. Did Pilate buy it? Did he believe it? Not at all. In fact, he was very clever in his response back to these guys. He knew the craftiness of these men because he has dealt with them many, many times over and over again. He knew what they were up to. They weren't pulling any wool over his eyes. He knew that they wanted him to pronounce the death sentence so that he would be blamed and Rome would be blamed by the masses. So he throws the situation right back at them. If it was their judgment that he was to accept regarding this man, you know, why you should believe us. He's a male factor. Believe us. Trust our judgment. So if that's what they want, then fine. Let it be their judgment. They could have his permission to judge him themselves according to their own laws. And they could inflict the appropriate penalty. You see, the Jews here were trying to usurp authority by acting as though they were the judges and Rome was simply to, to be the executioner for what they had already decreed. We've judged him, now you just execute him. So they're trying to usurp Rome's authority, aren't they? So Pilate cleverly goes along with that when he says back to them, okay, take him. And judge him according to your law. You see, these men were totally transparent to Pilate. He knew them very well. He saw right through all of their sarcastic pretense. He knew that they were trying to evade further inquiry into this situation, as he also knew that they wanted him to be the executioner. But he played dumb about that part. Realizing immediately their discomfort for, from his uh, request for the, for the change, the charge, he's taking advantage of the situation. He could play their game just as well as they could play it, although they do win in the end, don't they? But right now he's playing their game. If they're asking him to respect their, their law so much, he's ask, they're asking him to respect their law, then fine. They could do without him. They could go and settle the case themselves by their own law. And this would provide a way for him to evade this entire matter, which over and over again he tries to do. He tries to get out of this. This is the first evasion. 
which he figured was over some petty little religious Jewish squabble anyway that he'd rather not get involved in. So here they are. Now, in response to Pilate telling them to take Jesus and judge him according to their own law, the Jews say what in verse 31b? It is not lawful for us to put any man to death. You see, if it suited their purposes, they could cite Roman law. (laughs) Here, what they were doing is unwittingly fulfilling several prophecies. First, by insisting on Rome's law that disallowed them the right to execute the death sentence, the Jews were fulfilling Old Testament prophecies that had predicted that the Messiah would die how? By way of crucifixion. Where are there Old Testament prophecies that say he would die by way of crucifixion? You know, even though back then, in the Old Testament days, crucifixion was, was unknown. Nobody ever heard of death by that kind of means. The word wasn't known until the Romans came along and made it their primary means of execution. Nobody heard of of crucifixion. But when we look back now at the Old Testament, we know that such verses as Psalm 22.16 and Zechariah 12.10 referred to crucifixion because both of those passages speak of piercing through the hands and the feet That's crucifixion, piercing through the hands and the feet. You know, that didn't happen if someone was stoned to death, did it? Or strangled, or however else they would put somebody to death. That was a unique thing for crucifixion. Um, Jesus knew also that he would die by crucifixion. Of course, Jesus knew because he knew the Old Testament, didn't he? He wrote the Old Testament. He knew he was going to die by crucifixion, and he himself had predicted it. Remember, as early back as John 3, when he was speaking to a Pharisee named Nicodemus, what had he said? He said, as Moses lifted up the in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be what? Lifted up. He said in John 12:32, "And I, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me." And he wasn't speaking of his ascension, because John goes on and tells us that when he said, "If I be lifted up," he was speaking of what means of death he would die, lifted up. And then he even came right out and made it even clearer than all those things when he said in Matthew 20:19 that he would be crucified. He said it right out, I will be crucified. So the Jews were unknowingly fulfilling Messianic scripture, which again only further proved that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. Now, if the Jews had decided right here at this point in time when Pilate says, okay, take him and judge him by your own law, you, I give you permission to put him to death your way. If they had decided right here and then to go ahead with the permission that Pilate was allowing them to have to put Jesus to death themselves, guess what? They would have defeated Jesus' own predictions. Because how would they have had to put him to death? They did not do crucifixions. They would have stoned him to death, likely. And they would have defeated his own prediction. They would have disqualified him as being the Messiah. But, of course, that would never have happened, would it? (laughs) Wouldn't have happened. 
They, they did precisely as Jesus had predicted. They delivered him. They betrayed him to the Gentiles that they, the Gentiles, should put him to death by way of crucifixion. And verse 32 tells us here that hereby the saying of Jesus was fulfilled. You see, if a person does not see the sovereign rule of God in every single aspect of Christ's passion, it's really only because that person does not know the scripture, right? Because every week we see it over and over and over again, the sovereignty of God in every little aspect of everything that took place. And that is going on today, too. Well, another interesting prophecy that proved Jesus to be the true Messiah, or Shiloh. You know, in the Old Testament, Shiloh spoke of the Messiah. Did you know that? All right. It is brought to our attention by the words of these Jews to Pilate when they say it is not lawful for us to put any man to death. Now, the prophecy that I'm speaking of here, that they're fulfilling, really, is found in Genesis 49.10. Genesis, all the way back to Genesis. And it was part of the dying words of Jacob, the patriarch Jacob, as he's speaking to his 12 sons. And when he's speaking to his son Judah, from whom would come the Messiah? Which tribe? Which son? Judah, the lion from the tribe of Judah. When Jacob is speaking to his son Judah, he says these words. You all know them. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. Now that statement of the Jews that they could not lawfully put any man to death because they were subject to the laws of Rome was an admission, they're admitting here, that they were no longer their own governors. They were under the dominion of a foreign power, right? This is true. This is true. They were no longer their own lawmakers. But most of the time, those proud Jews would not admit this. You know, like back in John 8, 33, right after Jesus said, if you know the truth, the truth shall make you what? Free. You know how the Jews responded to that statement? They said, we're Abraham's seed. We've never been under bondage to any man. We're already free. What are you talking about? How ridiculous. They said that and they were under the bondage of Rome. But they, you know, they're so proud. They never would admit that they were bound to any other uh, nation or anything. But here they finally speak the truth. And they say it's not lawful for us. You know, they're doing this because of their own agenda. They want him crucified, but finally the truth is coming out. In order to get Jesus killed the way they wanted to, they finally spoke the truth. It was not lawful for them to put any man to death because they were subject to Roman law. So you see, by their own admission, Genesis 49.10 had received fulfillment. The scepter had departed from Israel. She no longer had a king, did she? Uh, she was no longer her own lawmaker. Rome was her lawmaker. In other words, by their own mouths, 
the Jews were declaring that they no longer had a law administrator in Judah, in Israel. So this means they should have been asking this question. Based on Genesis 49.10, they should have been asking, where then is Shiloh? Messiah, he must have come. What was the prophecy? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. They're no longer, they don't have the scepter. They're no longer their own uh, lawgiver. So that means Shiloh must have come. So they should have been asking the question, where is he? What was the answer? The answer is he's right in front of you and you're trying to put him to death. Isn't that amazing? Again, it's just, every time I study this, I just get goosebumps all over me. They're trying to put Shiloh to death. Well, with their first accusation against Jesus, that he was a male factor, not being accepted by Pilate as being sufficient, he didn't believe it, the Jewish officials had to present more accusations in order to justify their demand for the death sentence. So we find that suddenly they add a little more civility when they're speaking to Pilate. First of all, they were really sarcastic. Would we even bring him to you if he wasn't a male factor? They're very sarcastic. But now all of a sudden... They get a little kinder in their tone, and they th- throw out three more accusations against Jesus. And for these, you have to go back over to Luke. Go back look at Luke 23, 2, I think it is. And um, likely because they knew they really had no singular case against him, they figured that the more they piled on against him, maybe the better it would sound. Their own condemnation against Jesus for blasphemy um, was not going to be important to a non-Jewish pilot who had very little respect for the religion of these hypocrites, by the way. Why would he ever get saved? Why would he ever believe in the true God when he looks at these bunch of hypocrites? Weren't they terrible witnesses to the Gentiles around them? So he doesn't have any respect for their religion. He's not going to uphold their verdict for blasphemy against their God. So they shift to the political realm. And in Luke 23, 2, they present Pilate with three political accusations against Jesus. Number one, they accuse him of perverting the nation. Number two, they accuse him of refusing to pay what? Taxes to Caesar. And number three, they accuse him of claiming to be Christ a king, implying that he's a rival to Caesar. So, again, they're doing whatever is expedient for them in order to accomplish their mission of getting Jesus condemned to death by way of crucifixion. They had no concern whatsoever if their accusations were true or not. And the Roman governor was not deceived by their pretense at being good, concerned subjects of Rome. You know, here they're pretending to be men who are trying to bring to justice one who is attempting to provoke sedition against Rome, perverting the nation, and refusing to pay the taxes that were due to Caesar and claiming to be a rival king to Caesar. He's not tricked by all of this because Pilate was far too familiar with his crafty opponents than to suppose that they were going to want to eliminate someone who could possibly free them from their Roman oppressors. Jesus had not perverted the nation, either politically or religiously. What had he done? What had he done that made these Jewish religious leaders so angry? What was it that really made them angry, so angry that they wanted to put him to death? 
Was it because they, he perverted the nation? No. It's because he had denounced them. Woe unto you, you hypocrites. And the way they had, uh, he denounced the way that they had taken the righteous laws of God and, and twisted them into their own hypocritical man-made system of religion. He denounced them for all of that, and he exposed them, and he cleansed what they had done to the temple so as to get them to repent as a nation so that they could be blessed. Everything he did was so they'd repent. Everything he's done in this country, 9-11 and all the other things that we have experienced financially in this country, is so that he gets our attention so that we will, what? Repent, and he can bless us again. Trying to bring people into God's kingdom was the Lord's mission. He wasn't trying to pervert the nation. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. That does not pervert people from, I mean, uh, pervert people from their civil governments. And it fa- in fact, it makes um, them better subjects. When people are saved, they become better citizens. Followers of Christ are to be the best citizens of any government, any country. Never once, not one time, did Jesus try to incite Israel against Rome. Go look through his sermons. Does he ever say, come on, let's fight Rome? The only warnings he gives against are the religious rulers of Israel itself. And he specifically had taught just two days earlier. Now, remember, this is Thursday morning. On Tuesday, just two days earlier, he had taught when they tried to trick him with the question, you know, should we pay our taxes to Caesar? What had he said? He said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God's. He wasn't telling the people not to pay their taxes. So, in other words, Jesus had taught that every citizen was to be loyal to his government, no matter who was in control. Doesn't matter if it was Rome. Be loyal, be faithful, be good citizens. Obey the laws. That's what he taught. And interestingly, with regard to their third charge, that Jesus claimed to be both the Christ, their Messiah, and a king, it was for the very fact that he did not set himself up as a rival to Caesar that they rejected him. They were looking for just such a Messiah. They were looking for a political Messiah, one who would lead them in a rebellion against Rome and defeat Rome and then establish a, a, a kingdom right there, you know, with Israel being the, the lead nation. They were looking for a political king like David had been for them. Remember when that huge Galilean crowd Um, of Jews had tried to take Jesus and make him their king after he had fed the 5,000 and he escaped from their midst. Remember that? It wasn't a political realm that he came to establish. He didn't come to set up a political realm. He came to establish a spiritual realm first to, you know, establish the spiritual realm. And if Israel had accepted him, as her spiritual king, then he would have set up a political realm, right? But first and foremost, he he was all about being the king over their hearts. So that's their three accusations, and Pilate was no dummy. He very well knew that the charges of these Jewish leaders against Jesus were false. 
For one thing, he knew how much they despised Rome's presence in their land. You know, it didn't take a rocket scientist to realize that if Jesus had been a viable insurrectionist against Rome, they would be supporting him and protecting him and not bringing him to stand before a Roman governor to demand his death. Isn't that the truth of the situation? They sympathized with those who opposed Rome, which is why we're going to see also when Pilate tries to make have another escape from putting Jesus to death, and he says, well, I'm allowed at the Passover to uh, release one prisoner. Who do they demand to be released? Barabbas, because he was an avid insurrectionist against Rome and had light, he had murdered for the cause uh, you know, of, of overthrowing Rome. So Pilate's not fooled at all here. In fact, over in uh, Matthew 27, 18, we find out that Pilate knew the real reason that these Jewish leaders wanted Jesus killed. And why was it? Because they envied him. Exactly. They envied him. And Pilate knew that. We're told that. It was certainly not because of their loyalty to Rome. You see, even to an idol-worshiping Gentile politician, their motive was just as transparent as glass. However, because any one of these three accusations raised against Jesus left Pilate open to a charge of treason against Rome, he knew these guys well enough that if he didn't do something, they'd, they'd run to Caesar and tattletale and say he did nothing about a king who's trying to be in competition with you, Caesar. He knew he couldn't just get away with dismissing this situation entirely. He needed to question Jesus about these charges. Remember, it was Roman law that the defendant be granted the liberty to defend himself. So in our lesson next week, Lord willing, we're going to look at the first of three conversations that Pilate has with Jesus himself. And he goes back into the praetorium to do so. And it's going to be a very interesting conversation that we'll look at next week. All right, let's, let's bow in prayer. Father God, we do thank you once again for how much you teach us in your word about your sovereignty. Thank you that you are indeed in control of everything, everything that goes on in this world. You know about it. Nothing surprises you, and everything is fulfilling your plan. And, Lord, we we want to note this in closing, that when Pilate stepped back into his Gentile residence, Jesus went with him. He didn't make any protest about going in. He wasn't concerned about defiling himself by setting foot into a residence that might have some leaven present or or, uh, some idols standing around. He wasn't concerned that he might bump into a Roman soldier and defile himself. He came, after all, into this sin-cursed world that's absolutely packed with leaven and false gods, and they didn't defile him, didn't make him unclean, because he is pure righteousness, pure holiness. He's completely sinless, and nothing could or did ever defile him. We thank you, Father, that his whole purpose in coming and stepping into the praetorium of this world was so that his righteousness could also be ours, whether we're Jew or Gentile. He wasn't concerned that he couldn't participate in the Passover. 
because he knew that he was the Passover and how we do love him and thank him for so willingly going to that cross to be our Passover lamb. We love you, Lord, and we pray in your name. Amen.